Let us now go to Michigan, where Professor Ben Burgess is visiting his parents. Professor Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He is a columnist for Jacobin. You can see him every Tuesday night doing the debunk on the Michael Brooks show. He is also a professor of political science, Georgia State University, Perimeter College. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. So I don't know how much time you have, but there are a couple of things I want to talk to you about. I want to discuss Brett Stevens' column about Jewish genius in The New York Times. We have a clip of Elizabeth Warren saying that she's still on the same page as Bernie when it comes to Medicare for all. And then Mayor Pete giving us a wonderful bedtime story about our founding fathers, these innocent white men who just didn't know any better. And I like that narrative. So where should we start? Let's start with let's start with a quick hit on this guy. What is his name? James B. Foley, a retired career foreign service officer, wrote a piece over at the Hill entitled Bloomberg underscores that only pragmatism can defeat Trump. He's worried that that purity tests and demanding too much from our candidates is going to sink the Democratic Party. Did you you have a chance to see that story? Uh, I did. Um, and as as always, I'm I'm kind of amazed at how events that happened very recently uh, seem to rapidly become like half forgotten legends of distant countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a there's a passage in here I thought was fascinating. It says, in 2016, conservatives cynically embraced a man who shared neither their values nor their convictions in pursuit of a right wing agenda. Um, the can liberals uh, value the shape of the Supreme Court and federal judiciary? Uh, less uh, less than conservatives, and it's interesting because because uh, this is this is something I hear a lot, right? That you know that Republicans like they'll really like rally around their own in a way that you know Democrats or liberals or progressives won't. Uh, but here's what I remember about 2016, and I mean, if you remember it differently, please let me know. But uh, I seem to recall that the Democratic runner-up, one Bernard Sanders. Um, uh, endorsed uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton uh, in, and after you know the voting was over. In fact, uh, he nominated her uh, at the end of the convention uh, for uh, to be you know uh, nominated by acclaim, mm-hmm. right? you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and he enthusiastically campaigned for her for months. Yes. Uh, and what I remember about the Republican convention that year is that almost none of the other candidates would even dignify it with their presence. Uh, that I remember uh, Ted Cruz being booed in Cleveland. He was yeah. he not only didn't ignore Trump, he attacked Trump at the convention. Yeah, yeah, he took the invitation, but he very conspicuously declined to take the opportunity to endorse Trump. Uh, and, uh, and he was, and he was booed by the crowd. It was a, uh, it was, um, it was what would have been any other year <laughs> been, uh, been a really iconic moment, but so much else was going on. We kind of forgot about it quickly, but you know, but Ted Cruz, the, the Republican runner up went to the convention, but did not endorse the nominee, made a big deal of not endorsing the nominee. He said the next day that he's not in the habit of endorsing people who, uh, slander, you know, his family, right. Cause, uh, Trump had said Cruz. Who's his father? You know, kill JFK, uh, and um, and the wife. And, he made fun of Heidi. Yeah, he made fun of Heidi for a mental illness. That's right. Uh, and but like Cruz was the only one who even showed up. Like there were about sixteen Republicans who ran that year, and by and large, uh, they didn't even no they, Jeb, they, no Rubio, no Kasich. They stayed far away. No Newt from the convention. And with few exceptions, most of these people stayed out of the, ele- the the general election entirely. While Bernie Sanders was crisscrossing the country, uh, campaigning for Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, it's I, I don't remember um, I don't remember Marco Rubio, you know, uh, doing any rallies, you know, for nope. Trump. Uh, so so this this idea is is just is just based on nothing. It's it's just based based on. Um, 
It's just based on assumptions uh, that like this is his general sense of how reality works. So that must be what happened <laughs> in right. 2016, which is, of course, the same reason that uh, that he believes that Michael Bloomberg, uh, a man who is uh, deeply unlikely to even win the majority of the primary votes in the city of which he was mayor, right? Mm-hmm. Much less anybody else, uh, is electable for president. You know, Michael Bloomberg, who who combines the the widespread appeal of a soda tax with all the charisma of Michael Bloomberg, you know, that yeah. this is the guy who could beat Trump. Right. Yeah. This is uh, a man who he says uh, should appeal to the Democratic progressives, even though Bloomberg is a registered Republican, supported the invasion of Iraq, says that they were, you know, were behind 9-11 he said, stop and frisk. he said more white people suffered under stop and frisk than African-Americans. Bloomberg did. Well, there you go. Yeah. And uh, moving on just very quickly, he writes Hillary Clinton, and Al Gore, respectively, bear responsibility, of course, for those Democratic defeats. But they likely would have won had progressives rallied to them in sufficient numbers. Would you like to respond to that? Apparently, Hillary Clinton, and Al Gore lost. Because progressives didn't vote for them. It's it's our fault. Yeah. It's our which fault. Which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, which is fascinating because in the polls I've seen, um, actually a much higher percentage of people who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary went on to vote for Hillary Clinton in the general election than 2008 Hillary supporters uh, voted for Obama in the general election, despite the fact that 2008 Hillary supporters realistically would have been far more likely to start out as Democrats, whereas people voting for the independent socialists running for the Democratic nomination are more likely to include a lot of people who who voted for the Green Party, for example, in previous elections. Uh, and can you can you explain that for one second? Because what we, sure, sure. we 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 have been convinced by I think they're Russian bots. That Bernie stayed home after the convention and didn't yeah. endorse. Uh, Bernie did not stay home. He actually did dozens of rallies uh, for uh, for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I I said this I, I said this wrong. I, I was mistaken in the way I put this on uh, on TMBS a little while ago. So I want to be very careful about how I put it now. Uh, he um, you know he went to some of the states that uh, that Hillary. Uh, should have campaigned in, right? You know, that mm-hmm. like, if, you know, like, you know, he campaigned for her in Michigan, for example, um, but, uh, but Hillary didn't think it was worth her time to, um, to, to do the same. In fact, there was some of that time, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that Bernie Sanders may have been uh, maintaining a more active schedule of public events uh, than, uh, than Hillary Clinton was. Uh so, so this i uh, this idea that this idea that Bernie Sanders, you know, just packed it in after the convention, is ludicrously wrong. He did far more to help elect, well, you know, help try to elect Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton did in two thousand eight to try to elect Barack Obama, uh, and in fact, it paid off more. So, more Bernie supporters voted for Hillary in 2016 than Hillary supporters had voted for Obama in uh, 2008 in percentage terms, at least, you know, polls I've seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's particularly remarkable because if you think about it, Bernie Sanders um, attracted support from lots of people who did not consider themselves to be Democrats before 2016. Exactly. He brought people into the Democratic Party who otherwise would have stayed home on election day. No question about that whatsoever. He is a democratic socialist. He does not support. It was a compromise for him to, to endorse Hillary. Absolutely. And, you know, he saw, um, and, uh, and, and it was, look, it was a compromise for him to, to run the democratic primary in the first place. He, uh, you know, he was elected, uh, you know, first as mayor of Burlington and then as congressman and then as senator from Vermont uh, as an independent. Um, 
and he um and but he didn't want to run as an independent because he he didn't want to uh he didn't want to spoil uh the the democrats chances of winning you know yeah i mean if you're if you're a, a hillary clinton supporter you will charge that bernie supporters stayed home on election day do you know the numbers the numbers behind that how many uh, so, bernie supporters yeah, didn't so, uh, vote for hillary uh, i don't know about i don't know about yeah okay so i believe right like now again i know it's it's hard to be sure i don't know how much polling there is on this but the polling i remember seeing in the past i believe that it's something like 10 percent of bernie supporters didn't vote for hillary clinton yeah i i thought it was like about 16 percent but that's that seems okay. about right. Yeah. You know, so sixteen percent of Bernie supporters, yeah, some, some, somewhere in that range, as opposed to about a quarter of Hillary supporters in two thousand eight. Okay, and that's what a badism, and we don't need to do that. We don't well, need to say that Hillary, because <laughs> by the it's, way, well, 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 one thing you know, I love the I love this word what aboutism, right? You know, because because look, I understand in some contexts what aboutism is actually actually is bad like if you're saying there's nothing wrong with x because of y right because mm-hmm. what about y sure that's stupid right you know x and y can both be bad but if you're saying hey it's a little inconsistent <laughs> to um to be upset about x but not also be upset about y uh, that doesn't strike me as what aboutism so much as just like trying to maintain principled, consistent standards. That if you if you're gonna if you're gonna blame Bernie Sanders for the much smaller number of supporters who didn't take his advice and vote for Hillary Clinton in the general election, right? Then you should really apply the same standards and blame Hillary Clinton uh, for uh, those of her supporters who were who were uh, so-called pumas in uh, in 2008. Um, but like I, in neither case do I think you should. I think that's a stupid thing to do. You know, a candidate can't control everybody who who votes for them. The best they can do is make their case and and hope that you know hope that they convince people. Yeah, and again, the difference between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton was negligible. And as you just pointed out, the difference between Bernie and Hillary is there's a gaping chasm between the two absolutely yeah and and that that is a problem we're going to get to elizabeth warren in a second because there's still a lot of people although more and more are beginning to realize that elizabeth warren is not the real deal and bernie is and just to repeat what you just said because it's really important to understand this it's not surprising that somewhere between 10 and 16 percent of the people who voted for bernie in the primaries didn't see a difference between Trump and Hillary Clinton. There is, but it isn't surprising that 10 to 16% of Bernie supporters. Absolutely. It wouldn't be surprising if it were the other way around, if it were the other way around and a much bigger percentage of Bernie supporters than Hill, you know, in 2016 than Hillary supporters in 2000, uh, 2008 had done something other than vote for the nominee. That wouldn't be surprising. That but, wouldn't be an indictment of, of Bernie. That would make perfect sense because, after all, lots of people voted for Bernie in the primary who uh, who would have either stayed home entirely or voted third party because they were to the left of the Democratic establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would have made perfect sense if a much bigger right percentage of them had done that, right? They have a, the fact that, you know, because if somebody starts out um, as, you know, if somebody starts out as, uh, uh, as, as an independent, as a non-voter, as a third party voter, and then they see Bernie Sanders and say, Hey, well, let's give this a shot, right? Maybe this guy can, you know, can get the nomination and I can actually have a Democrat I want to vote for. And then it doesn't work out. Well, you don't own those voters, right? They're going to do whatever they're going to do. So they have a so the fact that it was only ten to sixteen percent is really a testament to how hard Bernie worked uh, to campaign for Hillary Clinton in the closing months of the two thousand sixteen election. And the six or seven presidential debates that we've seen so far this year, there is a stark difference between Bernie and the other candidates, including Elizabeth Warren. When he is on that stage, you see that 
it's an insurrection that he is completely different from all other Democrats, and he's bringing a different voter into the fold. When you watch the debates, do you yeah. sense uh, that the that the other candidates are terrified of Bernie? Mm. Yeah, they wouldn't dare to... challenge him on anything. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I think that most of them, you know, have made the calculation that that he it, can't that... win, so ignore him. Yeah, he can't win, so ignore him. It's better not to alienate his supporters because... He's kind of like Marion Williamson in their mind. Yeah. uh, Heart is in the right place, but it's fairy dust and moonbeams. Yeah. Uh, Sure, I think some of them do do see him that way. Uh, You know, it's... You've you've certainly gotten... um, You know, you've certainly gotten, like, well... You know, some of the like uh, the really pygmyish centrists. You know, your Amy Klobuchar's, your um, God, remember John Delaney, right? John, your John Delaney's, right? Right, have tried to make a big point of attacking, uh, of attack of attacking Bernie because you know, so people will know who they are. But but yeah, the the bigger the bigger candidates haven't really bothered so much. I'm not quite sure what their thinking is on that actually. I wonder if some of them have the same kind of delusion that some of the Republican candidates had in 2016, that they thought that, well, uh, Trump is going to flame out one way or the other, right? There's no way this guy is in it for the long haul. So what I really need to do is to compete for the not for like the non-Trump lane, right? Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, um, the reasonable lane. And, you know, and then once, you know, once Trump is out or once I've won this lane and it's down to Trump and me, right, you know, then things will be different. But right now there's no reason to, like, expend energy attacking Trump. You know, I should just attack these other Republicans who are in my lane. So it's possible that some of the Democrats right now have have the similar idea. And I hope, you know, that they're rewarded in the same way uh, that those Republicans were in 2016. And they might be right. Like it's it's very um, it's it's very possible. Like it's uh, right now, you know, like I mean, who knows? Right. Nope. Like we've still got weeks and weeks uh, until anybody votes. But uh, but right now things are looking very plausible. Uh, You know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, uh, and, and so I, I, you know, my fondest hope is that there would be, um, is that it'll be, it'll be just like 2016 by the time they realize that, uh, that, that the lane doesn't mean anything and the guy they didn't take seriously enough is going to win. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, it's going to be too late, uh, that, you know, that I, I really hope that that happens. Uh, my big fear I, before the, uh, primary started, uh, my big fear was that so many of the other candidates were going to try to co-opt uh, certain elements of Bernie's 2016 platform, that the differences wouldn't be that clear and it'd all be muddied up. And uh, people would say, well, if there's um, if, you know, if all these people are for Medicare for all, for example, then, you know, why don't we go for one who's not, you know, a, a geriatric white guy uh, and socialist but, who's actually going to give us Medicare for all? Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I am happy to report that that is no longer a concern, right? Like, like, at, at, like when the, when it started, several of them seemed like they were trying to imitate some of the Bernie platform, and now that's that's increasingly gone away. Like, like a, pretty much everybody who started out saying they're for Medicare for all has at this point switched to some sort of you know. Uh, some sort of public option or whatever the hell Andrew yeah. Yang. Yeah, we'll get is. to that in a second. Are you surprised by the wisdom of? I, I'm not surprised by it. You know, we attack the system, but there is a filtration system that takes place in Iowa and New Hampshire, where yeah. Bernie is in second place in Iowa behind Buddha Judge, and he's in first place in New Hampshire. There is a filtration system that weeds out the BS. Elizabeth Warren was, you know, this year's model, this month's model. She's slipping in the polls. Her fundraising is going to be down for the fourth quarter. It looks like 
her fourth quarter numbers will be lower than her third quarter numbers. She has a few more hours to raise the money. And Bernie, you know, has more money than anybody. So let's turn to Elizabeth Warren because she and Bernie were on the same page. You know, it wasn't. She literally it was like said th- the words, I'm with Bernie. I'm with Bernie. It wasn't, I think it was like three months ago where that Tish girl on MSNBC, the the heir to the Tish fortune said, uh, you know, uh, there's no difference between Bernie and uh, and Elizabeth Warren. And so if you if you're just voting for Bernie, it's sexism. Right. Remember right. that woman? Oh, yeah. I remember that very well. OK, so uh, Elizabeth Warren was asked about Medicare for all. She was asked, have you separated from Bernie on Medicare for all? Do you and Bernie now have opposite or different views on Medicare for all? And Elizabeth Warren said, no, we we still agree. Here is Elizabeth's answer. She says she and Bernie are on the same page when it comes to Medicare for all. I'm so with Bernie. Uh, We're still there on Medicare for all. I think it is the right place to provide the maximum amount of health care to everyone who needs it at the lowest possible cost. Um, And that's how I want to do the transition plan. I want to get the most help to the most people as quickly as possible. And I got a plan for that. Yes. So she's saying, you know, she's on the same page now. Bernie and I, we're both for Medicare for all. So the idea is that first I'm going to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, That's something that a president can do all by herself. Uh, And then second, I want to pass, and we can do this with a 50-vote majority and a vice president to break the tie. I want to pass uh, a transition plan that fully covers the costs of health care for 135 million people. They can opt into that system if they want. They can experience it. It'll be available at a low cost for tens of millions more. And when people have a chance to try it, when they have a chance to live with it, then we'll have a vote. That's what you do in a democracy. It would be a vote on a bill for everyone to transition. That's what we do in a democracy. But I want to let everyone have a chance to see what that's like, to feel what that's like, not to have to make the decision between having a prescription filled and um, getting your groceries for the week. I want... I don't think that's a choice that Americans all have to make. So you're a professor, right? You have a yeah. PhD. You have a you're a doctor, is that correct, sir? Yeah, but not the kind who can help people. Right. Okay. I, I can't laugh because I have a cold because you oh. can't because you're not a real doctor. I have this cold and you can't help me. So Elizabeth Warren is saying that Americans should first get a taste of what it's like to not be you know, burdened with exorbitant health care bills. So we've never experienced, nobody in America has experienced Medicare, right? That's, uh, this would be, it's a new thing, Medicare, right? So is that, is that what she's saying? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, So we don't know if it could work, Medicare. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the program hasn't existed for, for very long. It's, it's like barely over half a century mm-hmm. and, um, and we, we only have, uh, I mean, I mean, of course, you know, the, look, that's Medicare, you know, as far as Medicare for all, right. right? Like you know, what it would be like if, you know, if everybody had it right. So like, you know, Medicare for, you know, for young people, you know, they have a, like, that's, uh, that's only existed in in Canada for a few decades, you know. So we we, we don't have very much information right, about right. what that would be like. Um, well, you are, you know statistics, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So statistics every, are good friends of mine. Yeah. Statistics are good. Okay. So you know the numbers. So seems to me that if every senior citizen loves Medicare, that's that seems to be what. Don't mess with my Medicare, right? Yeah, I I have yet to meet one who uh, who wants to take it away from them. That's that's certainly true. Okay, statistically speaking, if you if everybody 
who gets Medicare right now loves it. If you add more people to Medicare, then statistically speaking, the odds are that eventually we're going to find people who hate it. That's what the, if you give it to everybody, Mm -hmm. all 360 million Americans, that would increase the odds that some people would end up hating Medicare. So isn't it better to just leave it with old people? Yeah, I mean, if the most important goal is that um, is that everybody love it, not that it actually uh, be used in order to provide life-saving medical care, then that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it, it also, like, it, it, the general procedure makes sense. Like, you know, just, I mean, just brass tacks. Like, you know, in, um, well, you know, 1964, you know, along with Medicare, uh, we got the Civil Rights Act, but they didn't just do it all at once. Um what they did was first uh, they they went around the south, uh, constructed next to next to the white and colored fountains. Uh, they they constructed special pay water fountains. Yeah. That you that you could buy into using that were uh, that were multiracial. And, you know right. anybody could buy into using them. Um, choice. And, That's choice. Yeah, exactly. And then, because uh, a lot of African Americans back then they liked their water fountains. They were afraid that if they were, you know, if they were going to share their water fountains with white people, that the quality of their water would deteriorate. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. No, I'm not surprised. So, uh, so yeah, like, and so, but that's what we do in a democracy. You know, we, we provide, you know, we, we give everybody a taste of what it would be like, you know, to have multiracial water fountains. And, and then we have a vote about it. We have a vote. That's how democracy works. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so people tried the, the public option water fountains that were multiracial. And they said, you know what? I can't tell any difference between the multiracial water and the white water or the black water. Let's this is insane. Let's just have universal water fountains. That's how democracy yeah. works. That that is how it happened. And that is exactly why. If you look at all the countries that have some sort of national health insurance, uh, they all started with public options, um, and uh, and then like much later, some sort of uh, some sort of vote about whether to transition fully to national health insurance. Right. That's that's what happened in Canada. That's that's you know that's what happened in South Korea. All the countries with national health insurance uh, went through that route because it wouldn't be democratic if they didn't. Right. Right. I can't understand why Elizabeth Warren is sinking in the polls and people aren't donating money to her anymore. She says that she wants that she has a plan that before we vote on Medicare for all, because that's what democracies do. She has a plan, a transition plan that covers the cost of health care at a low cost. That I don't quite understand. How, how can you cover the cost of health care at a low cost for people? That's, yeah, it was, it was an interesting turn of phrase yeah. uh, because I want to know what kind of cost we're talking about. If, uh, you know, if you're talking about people paying into the system, not just like, you know, in the sense that we pay things for things with our taxes, but like actually directly paying for them just at a low cost. Then I get a little confused because it doesn't seem like what people are trying uh, during this this transition period uh, is actually Medicare for all or anything that remotely resembles it. Yeah, it's a uh, she's basically suggesting the public option. She is absolutely just suggesting the public option, and you know, just to just to break character here, like that. Yeah. It's 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 a bizarre insult to everybody's intelligence to pretend that um, to see this as some sort of like phased in transition or something, because the idea, um, you know, this is not like a piece of legislation where some of it kicks in next year and some of it kicks in, in five years. She's saying she's going to make a major legislative push for a public option and then come back in a few years to make a new legislative push. And, and it's, it's just, ludicrously unrealistic that this that that would actually play out can we, can we explain because even i even i not like as though i'm smart but 
I have some guests on this show who are comedians and, you know, some comedian, Ian Mac, uh, Ian, uh, Liam McEnany, very funny guy. But when we start talking about the public option, he thinks he's being reasonable because I love Liam. He's regular on the show. And I say this with all the love that I feel in my heart for him. He's an effing idiot. He says, you know, the public option is an option. It's a choice. So explain to me what the public option is, because Obama, this was going to be the gold standard of single payer had Obamacare really got into effect that eventually he would have the courage to introduce the public option. And then we'd finally have single payer because the American people would all buy into the public option and the health insurance companies would go out of business. The public option, that's not single payer, is it? No, it's not. Uh, by definition, if you have a public option, you have multiple payers because you have an option about which one uh, which one you want to use. And that might sound like I'm just kind of being finicky about words, but it's actually a really important distinction uh, because if you have um, if you have a public option, then you don't get the benefits that you get uh, to of of a single payer system. So I'll, I'll just you know give you. But, but excuse me for one second, but the public option, you bought, you're buying health insurance from the government. Is that correct? Yes, that that's so. So public option. Uh, one of the things that's really maddening about that phrase is that's really vague. Uh, it cover, it's it's very. Um, so the government is getting into the business of health insurance. That's the public option. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. Anything. So. So what I was going to say, it's, it's frustratingly vague because. Uh, because when people talk about a public option, uh, it sort of sounds like what they're talking about is, you know, something that would be just like Medicare for all, except for that, like, you know, if you weren't, you know, if it wasn't good enough for you, you could also buy some sort of extra insurance or something. Mm -hmm. But you start to dig into the details of what they're actually saying. What they're saying is that the government would essentially, uh, start its own, you know, would, uh, would 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 enter the insurance marketplace and and sell its own insurance plan so it wouldn't just be funded uh, the way that public services are through taxation uh, that you would be you know you'd still be paying premiums you'd just be paying these premiums to to a public entity uh, and it's it's often very unclear and you know the rhetoric of the public option makes it sound like absolutely everybody could buy. This this plan that's that's the only way that it makes sense to say oh yeah eventually this would just get us to single payer anyway because everybody would buy into the public plan and nobody would stick to the private plan, uh, but uh, it's it's very unclear if that's the case right like uh, like it, it really depends on the finicky details of the plan. And of course, the finicky details, the plan are the part that we have the least control over as the public, because that's what gets negotiated, you know, between behind closed doors. Uh, and I would be very surprised, like, even if, look, even in the fantasy world where, um, you know, a Democrat was elected and they got the public option, you know, through the Senate and all that, um, that, uh, even if even if all of that stuff happened, I'd be very surprised if it, if everybody was eligible for it. A lot of public option plans, like like when Obama was talking about a public option, if you listen to some of his speeches, it was very obvious that he was only talking. You know, he said he would say, "Oh, only such and such percentage of the public would even be eligible for it." Well, in that case, it's not gonna it's not gonna lead to single payer, right? So uh, now, so is Medicare just so we're clear? Medicare yeah. is not a public option; that is single payer. That is the government getting the bills from the health providers and paying them and yeah, saying the part, the, the, right? the part of the part of Medicare that's yeah, right. The part of Medicare that uh, that everybody just gets when they turn 65. I mean, there are there are, you know, different parts of Medicare and some of them you have to buy into. And, you know, the whole system could use a lot of streamlining. But yes, um, that like the way that the the way that basic Medicare or the way that Medicaid for that matter works is like the public is like single payer in miniature, uh, because you know because you're just uh, you're not paying you know premiums for that, 
Uh, you know, it's it's just that the the government is you know picking up the tab uh, uh, from Midachi's um, visits and all that. But it is really important to distinguish between having public elements in a market-based system and having single payer, right? Having a multi-payer system that includes a government payer and having single payer. And there, and there are at least two reasons that this is really important. And just real quickly, one is that you don't get the cost control benefits of single payer. Uh, if, uh, if you have a multi-payer system, because, uh, the government is only going to be in a position to demand, um, lower fees for services, uh, and you know, in less waste uh, from private hospitals, if it's if it's got that negotiating power of being the single payer. If you still have a bunch of private insurance companies, uh, then you're not going to get that. That they have, you know, so that's going to make it much more expensive per patient to have the public option. So that's like I realize that one's kind of wonky. It's a little abstract. The other one I think is much easier to kind of get immediately what the problem is. Uh, and that is if you look at um, if you look at at public health insurance of the kind we have right now, right? Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, basic Medicare, you know, everybody over sixty five has it, so doctors kind of have to take that. Uh, but um, Medicaid, uh, because most people, you know, only a minority of the public has it, um, and so they can get away with this. Uh, lots of doctors don't accept Medicaid, so they have right. a uh, so uh, including so, psychiatrists. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's a two tier, uh, so it's a two tier system, right? You know, you're there are. All right, let me real- slow you down because a lot of people, including me, are not really familiar with this stuff. Medicare, <clears throat> I'm sick. Appropriately enough, Medicare is universal. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you earned when you turn, I think, 66 or whatever, you're entitled to Medicare. You're entitled to the same Medicare as a millionaire. Is that fair to say? Yeah. They, there's I no mean, means sure. testing. Warren Buffett yeah. is entitled to the same Medicare as a, a senior citizen living on a fixed income. For all intents and purposes, right? Right. Yeah. And then Medicaid, which came later, that was block grants to the state. That that, that became this new, the the Republicans kind of favored that. Instead of big Washington paying for everything, let's give money to the states and they'll administer Medicaid because that's more efficient. And because the states administer Medicaid using federal funding and some state funding, they use means testing and create layers upon layers of bureaucracy. And more people are employed figuring out whether or not you qualify for Medicaid to get your colitis treated. More people are employed determining whether or not you can afford to get your colitis treated than the people who treat your colitis. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, absolutely. And again, this, this is just, yeah. So, um, and, and the, the basic point here, uh, is one that I think is, is fairly, is fairly intuitive, which is just that, um, if some people have Medicaid and some people have private health insurance plans, Lots of doctors know that, well, every patient that they make time for who has Medicaid, since Medicaid doesn't pay out at at as high a rate as the private plans, so every time they make time in their schedule for a patient with Medicaid, they're losing a little bit of money compared to taking a patient who is on a private plan. So lots of doctors don't take Medicaid, which means that the experience of having Medicaid is to that extent worse than the experience of having, you know, having private, um, private health insurance, because, you know, cause you don't have the same, uh, you know, because, you know, it's, it's, it's two tier, you know, right. right. The, you know, that you have, uh, that, you know, that the, um, you know, that the better doctors, you know, can afford, uh, to discriminate against you. Uh, and so if we just have a public option, then I'm not sure why it would be different in that respect. Right. It would be tantamount to Medicaid. Yeah. Worse than Medicaid because it's 
you're paying into it. Yeah, right. right? It's still it's still an insurance well, company. Well, like, like Medicaid, but but charging premiums. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and, and deductibles. Yeah. So once you start thinking about that, it's like, yeah, OK. Um, well, I think that that is giving people an if the idea is to give people a preview of what Medicare for all would be like, that's an awfully misleading preview because uh, under Medicare for all, the true sense, a single payer system, uh, there would be no different tiers because uh, Medicare for all would be something that would be had by all. And therefore all doctors would have to either accept it or change careers. Yeah. Uh, and so there would be no, two, no two tiers uh, and you wouldn't have to, to be paying, you know, paying premiums. Uh, and so, of course, lots of people, this idea that, oh, if public insurance is so great, then everybody will just go over to public insurance and then we'll, you know, we'll live, we'll, we'll just compete the private insurance industry out of business. Uh, this, this all gets down to an equivocation about public insurance. Do you mean, is having public insurance great when, it is the only kind of insurance, so therefore you're getting, you know, everybody's getting the same quality of care, uh, and it's it's all just paid for through progressive taxation, uh, or is public insurance great when you have to pay for it and lots of doctors don't take it? It cannot right. be great in the second scenario; it'd still be great in the first scenario. Right, right. And by the way, the health insurance companies and the lobbyists are already fighting the public option; they're already up in arms against the public option. And this is really infuriating because they want it both ways. The, the ruling class, the oligarchs, the Republicans, the lobbyists, they say two things. They say government can't do, cannot be as efficient as, as the free market. That private enterprise is way more efficient <laughs> than, than uh, the government. But... When the post office wants to go back to, say, banking, which it used to do, the banks say, we can't compete with the government. When <laughs> uh, when the government wants to offer up health insurance, a public option, the health insurance lobbyists walk through the halls of Congress and say, this is grossly unfair. How can we compete with the United States government? So they, they want it both ways. They, they want to convince us that government is inefficient. And at the same time, they can't compete with this so-called inefficient government. For example, Kaiser does this thing, the, uh, the bill, the surprise bill of the month. This is, this is what private health insurance paid out. A, a woman, a 40-year-old public policy consultant from Brooklyn, New York, had a sore throat. She goes to her primary care physician on Park Avenue, and yeah. she says, "I you read about this, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> and she got a, a throat swab, and it was out of network. And the, the doctor, because it was out of network, charged the insurance company $28,395. $28,395 for an out-of-network throat swab. She was told, she got the bill, and that her insurer would pay for $25,865. <laughs> and the doctor said, "If you know, as soon as you get that check and you get it to us, we'll waive the $2,530. $2,530 differential. So the insurance company cut a check for $25,865 for a throat swab. Why would an insurance company do that? That's something that, that, that is what you, when we hear propaganda against big government, that's what, those are the, you know, those are the $7,000 toilet seats that we used to hear about the Pentagon from the eighties. Look at this government waste. How does a health insurance company that has to answer to stockholders, how is that legal for a, a health insurance company to cut a check to a doctor for that kind of money? That ain't happening in the federal government. I guarantee you that doesn't happen in Medicare. I know there's, I know there's Medicare fraud. No, 
of course there's Medicare fraud, but this is this isn't uh, this isn't fraud. This isn't something they did uh, they did illegally. You know, this was this is like like everybody was following the rules here. But but the idea behind the free market is that the health insurance companies are going to provide checks and balances and say we're not paying out twenty five thousand dollars. They're going to ask questions. Instead, the health insurance companies just pay these bills. I don't understand that part. I guess they're just making so much money that it's easier for them just to pay the bill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before you go, how are you on time, by the way? Uh, I've got to wrap up the next few minutes. Okay, let's go to Mayor Pete. Oh, yeah, good. He, uh, he says things that just really sound good, and... He was talking to some kids, I guess 10 years ago, about how great the Constitution is and how innocent our founding fathers were, that they were good, good people and they, and they gave us a framework to work with. And as soon as I can find the clip, I will play. This is Mayor Pete talking to kids about our founding, founding fathers. Similarly, the amendment process, they were wise enough to realize that they didn't have all the answers and that some things would change. Uh, A good example of this is something like slavery or civil rights. Uh, For it's an embarrassing thing to admit, but the people who wrote the Constitution did not understand that slavery was a bad thing and did not respect civil rights. Uh, And yet they created a framework uh, so that as the generations came to understand that that was important, they could write that into the Constitution, too, and ensure true equal protection for all of us. So, Mayor Pete, boy, that yes. makes me feel good about America. <laughs> that makes me, he's saying that our founding fathers didn't know that slavery was wrong. Yeah, no, it had just never occurred to them that um, that there might be something wrong with that. Uh, I'm sure that the, like, the second that, like, somebody suggested to George Washington, for example, that um, that there was that slavery might be a morally a problem, right? The second he he heard that, he said, "Oh my God, I am so mortified. Uh, I am going to go back to the to the farm tomorrow and free all these slaves. I I I can't believe that I've been a party to this." Yes, they yeah. they they genuinely. That is exactly what happened. Yeah, they they in defense of Thomas Jefferson. He didn't know that the slaves were human. He didn't know that Sally Hemings was a human being. He fell in love w- in his mind with, uh, we're getting into trouble. But uh, <laughs> I think in the Constitution, they outlawed the slave trade. They, they were outlawing the slave trade, I think, by like 1830 in the Constitution. They said there'll be no more slave trade but that was probably to prop up the domestic slave market not because they knew slavery was was wrong you know what we better not go down this path even sarcasm will get us into trouble right the fact (laughs) sure the uh i mean the the fact is that uh, at the time of the founding there were lots of uh of anti-slavery societies uh, some of the, um, you know, some of the founding fathers were actually, you know, members of them, although, you know, they'd still, they still thought that, you know, they were still obviously willing to practice real politic, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, make compromises with the slaveholders. Um, there were, uh, and somebody like Thomas Jefferson, uh, not only knew that slavery was wrong, he, uh, he talked about it in the declaration of independence. That was, uh, in fact, one of the one of the most bizarre things originally in the Declaration of Independence uh, is that he sort of tried to blame King George for like foisting slavery on them, um, you know, which you know is is odd. But um, but you know, he founded the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, because the the creme de la creme of the Virginia landed gentry their boys were going off to harvard and being taught abolition and about how wrong slavery was and thomas jefferson we bet said we better build a a college a university down here in the south because our boys are coming home with crazy ideas like emancipation that's why the university of virginia was set up 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, and his house at Monticello. Uh, you know, he he set up um, all these things there. So like to uh, so like his his food would be uh, would be brought up by uh, levers and pulleys and stuff. So he wouldn't to minimize the amount that he had how time he had to interact with slaves because it it made him uncomfortable to be reminded of how reliant he was. <sighs> uh, on, on slave labor, the idea that the idea that it was um, that uh, that this was was morally that this was severely morally wrong uh, was certainly not unheard of. You know, at the very least, you know, it's 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 not like you know. Obviously, lots of slaveholders were very defensive about it. And, you know, and they had elaborate you know elaborate rationalizations for it. But um, but it's 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 but this this the way that Pete tells the story that would make you think that um, it just hadn't occurred to anybody that slavery was wrong. You know, they didn't know. What do you who knew? Who knew? Right? How could you know? Uh, the screams and, you know, coming when we I can't even. Yeah, hey, yeah. before you go, yeah, let's let's very quickly go over yeah. Brett Stevens Jewish genius column, because I fell prey to it. I almost sent. Brett Stevens' Jewish genius column to my kids and to my sister. Uh, he has this piece that is really disgusting in the New York Times, celebrating the brilliance of Jews this holiday season when when the, the anti-Semitism is increasing exponentially in America. We're seeing these attacks at that rabbi's house in Monsi and. Uh, Jews in America are more afraid now than they've been in, in my lifetime around the world. He, Brett Stevens, wrote a piece in the New York Times. He's a columnist, a conservative columnist, celebrating the, the Jewish IQ, the Ashkenazis having such a high IQ. What, what's wrong with writing about how brilliant Jews are? Why is that dangerous? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's uh, it's dangerous because you're feeding into this uh, a much more insidious general idea that um, that differences between different uh, different ethnic or racial groups uh, have um, are um, are about distinctions and in intelligence, and you know, and, and that's why that's why some groups are more successful than others. Which might sound innocent enough. Uh, if yeah, we're talking- praising you. We're praising the Jews. This is what he writes. He says, during uh, the 20th century, the Jews make up 30% of the U.S. population, but they won 27% of the U.S. Nobel Science Prizes and and 25% of the ACM Turing Awards. That Jews should be proud of that. Yeah. So so two two points. One. Uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, when you're praising the successes of a historically oppressed uh, minority, then that sounds fairly innocent. But let's think about for a moment about what the implications are more generally, right? You know, that if the uh, that if the successful people are successful because they're just so damn smart, uh, then they're, you know, maybe not as a matter of logical, you know, um, deduction but like certainly as a matter of like conversational implication there's certainly an implication there about why all the people who aren't so successful aren't so successful why for example uh black people aren't as successful as white people that's the charles murray uh thesis from the uh, most famous chapter of the bell curve or, or why poor people in general are less successful than rich people that's the more general thesis of the bell curve so that's one thing the second thing is that um the idea that because it's a positive, mm-hmm. uh, that the people being described can't possibly have any grounds for complaint, uh, seems kind of willfully naive given the entire history of anti-Semitism. Uh, that it's you know anti you know anti-Semites have never claimed that Jews were stupid, right? You know they've, right. they've always they've always claimed that Jews were you know diabolically cunning. You know that's right. The, uh, so you know, why why should I help the Jews? They have enough money. Why should we hire this Jew? He's got plenty of money. Hire the hire the non-Jew. 
Yeah, and you know, and you have and why accept and, this Jew into this college? Jews, yeah, Jews and, and, get and, yeah. And, go ahead. And, and, and you shouldn't and you shouldn't trust and you shouldn't trust the Jews, you know, because they're you know because with this, you know, with with this uh, this great intelligence, you know, they're always they're always scheming. They're up to something, right? You know, they're that's, trying to get uh, one past us. They're smarter than we are. You can't trust them, right? Exactly, uh, and in fact. Uh, I this was kind of interestingly brought out. Uh, do you know who uh, Sora Bamari is? No. Okay, he's the op-ed editor of the New York Post, um, and he's a, um, I believe he's like a uh, Iranian American okay. convert to uh, Christianity, and he's considered to be kind of a rising star conservative intellectual. Um, and he uh, he posted uh, he tweeted out something really interesting the day that everybody was talking about this Brett Stevens column, uh, where he was like, "Well, on the subject that everybody has been talking about on Twitter, I tend to think that God is actually closest to the the simpler among us, and that this sort of narrow technical or scientific intelligence can actually be more of a curse." Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, which I I I. Quote, you know, quote tweeted it in, you know, in, you know, the obnoxious way that I do on Twitter. And, you know, said, so that would mean Jews are godless. Yeah, that's that's certainly what it sounds like to yeah. me. Right. Yeah. And so I said, oh, uh, isn't this interesting? You know, you can always count on Sora Bamari to say the quiet part loud. Uh, and uh, and then he responded to me and we went around a couple of a couple of rounds. Then he blocked me. But uh, of course, but uh but yeah, it's, so there's it's, this danger of seeing Jews as these ubermenches, these superhuman beings who control all the levers of power. It's a stubborn prejudice as old as Western civilization that the Jews control are the are the brains behind the power. They control the money. They pull the strings. And then it's this cloudy conspiracy theory that makes it very easy as hitler did stalin did you blame everything on these non-existent jews like george soros who is jewish and has a couple billion dollars and he's funding the caravan that's coming up to invade the united states and spread disease it's Look, Brett Steve. I don't. I don't think Brett Stevens is any sort of self-hating anti-Semite or anything like that. I think he's just an idiot. Yeah. Uh, and As all the conservatives are, especially the ones who end up writing for the New York Times. I mean, you couldn't fact-check Bill Kristol when they gave him a column over at the New York Times. They had to fire him not because of his ideology, but because he just couldn't write the truth. And where did Brett Stevens get this Ashkenazi IQ stat from? Yeah, he uh, he got it from uh, from a researcher who'd actually like went around speaking at white supremacist conferences, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the New York Times actually ran a correction, which is very rare for an op-ed. Uh, but uh, they they ran a correction, saying, "Whoops, right? You know, this is uh, basically uh, he cited this discredited racist paper. Uh, we're we're just going to remove that, right? Uh, quietly take that out." Um, but uh, but yeah no it's like I said I I, I think that he I, I I don't think that he has a in this particular case I don't think he has a malicious agenda I think he's just not very smart and he's playing with fire um, that uh, because he's he's uh, he's like the fact that his that you know that Stevens you know is Jewish and thinks this is just fine and dandy you know that if if Jews are genetically well, he's not know, completely Jewish. Okay, um, he's kind of. A, I think it's a mixed. You know, regardless, I, I don't think he. Um, I don't think he's. You know, I don't think his his uh, his intention is to um, is to foster Jew hatred. I think. I think that it's. I think that he just um, is very intellectually lazy. We saw this with the uh, the bed bug uh, incident. Uh, that I'm sure everybody remembers when um, he wanted to accuse this this guy of being a Nazi for having referred to him as a bed bug. Mm-hmm. So he just kind of so he just kind of Googled you know Nazis plus you know Jews plus bed bugs and like 
the first thing that showed up on Google, the one instance of like a Nazi using bed bugs and insult uh, is what he printed in his New York Times column. And I think he did the same thing here. He just did a uh, he, he just did a very cursory Google search. He found somebody saying something that sounded nice to him. He didn't notice that the person he was quoting was uh, was a crazy discredited racist. Uh, and, and he, he printed it because apparently there's no quality control whatsoever for what you can say on the New York times op-ed page. Yeah. IQ means nothing by the way. No, it's, it's and they're culturally biased. The IQ test is culturally yeah, biased. It measures nothing. And what does it matter when, when somebody, and I'll let you go, when Charles Murray, the political yeah. scientist is studying the IQs of black people or Jews, yeah. To yeah. what end? Why? Why is yeah. that necessary? I can remember, well, I won't mention his name, but the, somebody was saying, well, this is important. We need to know this stuff. And I go, why? Why do certain conservatives think it's important to know what the black man's IQ is? Yeah. Why, why is that important? Yeah. So the idea that the... Um you know the i the, the iq test is a measure of intelligence it's it's kind of like the um you know the the dumb old joke about the you know drunk guy searching for his keys you know uh in the lamplight not because that's where he thinks he lost them but because that's where there's light right you know right. they having that if you want to um that if you really want something quantifiable uh iq scores give you that but uh but of course that doesn't really map on in any particularly interesting way to what we ordinarily mean by intelligence. And part of the problem is that what we ordinarily mean by intelligence, we're referring to a, a bunch of different uh, cognitive abilities uh, and skills, not all of which necessarily go together, uh, and and some of which are very hard to quantify. And I'm sure the IQ test uh, will accurately tell you some things at the extreme ends, right? You know, that they have, that, like, I'm sure that it's a, you know, that, you know, I mean, even if it's a blunt instrument, it's still going to tell like if, you know, it's still going to tell you that somebody is like has severe learning disabilities or, you know, whatever, or they're or or they should, you know, or that it's the guy from Goodwill Hunting, you know, but uh, but in between the idea that these that these that like um, the idea that you can infer much of anything, uh, certainly anything about genetic ability from um from IQ, um, from IQ test results, you know, and, and, you know, in terms of like, just like what, um, in terms of the, the normal range of adult humans, uh, is, is way more dubious than that. You know, I, I think, I think, you know, it's a, I, 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 I think it's basically a self licking ice cream cone, uh, you know, the IQ test industry and it's, um, and also, it's people who make a big deal about it and think it's genetic, just just the amount that they just willfully ignore all of the obvious right. uh, envir environmental factors is amazing. Like 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 Charles Murray says that uh, the fact that um, he actually says that any ill effects that that come from um, unequal access to education, uh, you know, aren't going to matter for IQ tests taken. Uh, you know, taken more recently than the early 70s. So it's used to justify keeping poor people down. Yeah. And, and uh, not raising taxes or spending money on schools. Absolutely, which is his larger agenda. Like the, the chapter of the bell curve that there was the most controversy about, and, you know, whatever, the publisher wanted there to be controversy about it to sell books, which is why they released this chapter in advance. But uh, the chapter there was the most controversy on was the one where Murray and his co-author Hernstein uh, uh, tentatively extend their larger thesis to the specific case of racial intelligence differences. Uh, but the larger thesis of the book uh, as a whole is, you know, bluntly that rich people are smarter than poor people, and that's why some people are poor and some people are rich, right? That that's the uh, that the explanation of 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 economic inequality in general is inequality in IQ. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's very important because like people who are defenders of Charles Murray will portray him as like, Oh, he's just like a, a scientist. He's doing research. No, he's not right. He's never worked in a university 
science department of any kind, right? Even social sciences. He's a, uh, he's spent his life in right-wing think tanks. His, uh, his agenda quite explicitly. If you look at all the other books he's written besides the bell curve, uh, is to fight against the welfare state to say, you know, say that we have, um, and the reason that this this claim about IQ fits into the larger project is he wants to say it's that like trying to correct inequality and in outcome is a fool's errand right. uh, because the uh, because really this just arises from the fact that we're naturally unequal because, you know, uh, because some of us are bestowed with, you know, with more intelligence than others. Right. He's with the American Enterprise Institute, I believe. Well. We've got the great Professor Ben Burgess on our side. He writes for Jacobin, which is totally amazing. Everybody should go to Jacobin, read Professor Ben Burgess over there, and read Jacobin. You can see Professor Ben Burgess every Tuesday night on the Michael Brooks Show doing the debunk and he teaches political science at the University of Georgia. Perimeter College. He's the author of the book, Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left, published by Zero Books. And go to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess. Get two essays written by the great Professor Ben Burgess delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. Stay on the line for one second. Thank you. That was great. 